Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you are looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church's campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Well, thanks again for reading the scripture, Garrett. Um, again, if you guys are new today uh, or listening online, which I know a few folks are, uh, thanks for worshiping with us. Uh, today's an exciting day because in this message, we're going to be, be uh, starting a brand new sermon series in Ephesians. Uh, if you did miss our last uh, sermon series, that was called All In, A Call to Be the Church. Uh, you can watch the whole series on YouTube um, or you can listen to it on Spotify. Now, over the next six months, uh, we're going to be working our way through Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians verse by verse. Um, This means that for this sermon, we're going to unpack Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. um, And we're also going to look ahead um, to some of the major features throughout this this six-chapter New Testament letter. Now, as most of you know, football season is well underway. I see the Emises came uh, prepared today uh, with the Chiefs gear, and then the rest of you faithful came in your journey gear. Oh, there's Mark. So, But in any case, um, uh, the Chiefs could certainly be doing better than their 3-3 three and three record, so here's to hoping that they uh, beat uh, the Titans. But in any case, with, uh, f- f- with football season, that also means that for some of us, it's fantasy football season. Uh, If you don't know what fantasy football is, it's basically make-believe football uh, that you play on your computer or smartphone using real statistics from NFL players from week to week. Uh, Like a coach or manager or somebody that's delusional, you draft, you start, you bench, you trade real football players against fantasy football players. In other words, it's a way to trick ordinary people like me into believing math and probability are more fun than playing actual football. Now, every year, my wife, uh, Kristen's side of the family, uh, creates a fantasy football league. Uh, For us, there's no gambling, there's no money involved. In fact, there's something much more valuable than money on the line. The only reason that this competition exists every year is to prove who the dominant family member is out of the 10 of us who compete. Uh, I'm proud to say that I've made the playoffs every year, but never have I proven myself to be the apex make-believe fantasy football coach. Um, I've always fallen short um, to one of my in-laws, but who knows, maybe 2021 will be my year. 2020 was nobody's year. Um, As we can see on the slide, my team, Sportsball, has an impressive 5-1 record. Uh, I beat my father-in-law last week, and I'm hoping to beat my high school nephew this week. My only loss this year, of course, is to my amazing wife. 
At this point, now some of you might be wondering, what in the world does fantasy football have to do with Ephesians? Well, by way of illustration, uh, competitive sports helps us to frame two truths about God that Ephesians teaches us. First, God is victory-oriented. And second, God is team-oriented. Again, God is victory-oriented, and God is team-oriented. We see both of these themes alluded to in these verses and then further developed in in this letter. God is competitive. The Old and New Testaments make it clear that he leads his people in such a way to experience victory. Whether it's Moses facing off the Egyptian gods, or Joshua against Jericho, or even Jesus against the cross, the Bible shows us God is always victory-oriented, and God is always working to lead the church to win. When Paul writes in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God, these inspired words are much richer in meaning than just a hallmark greeting card. You see, the world is not at peace today. The world is not at peace today, and the world has never been at peace at any point in history. God's view of victory is ultimately peace for those that he has graciously called. However, God doesn't choose to secure this peace as a soloist. Um, In God's good pleasure, Ephesians reveals that he is also team-oriented. Verse 1 reminds us that God graciously chooses apostles like Paul, saints like the Ephesians, and faithful followers like us to advance his victory over sin and death in this world. In most professional sports teams, whether it's football, basketball, or even major league gaming, there's usually four elements that make up a team professionally. First, you've got to have an owner, manager, or some kind of sponsor. They're the ones that usually form, sustain, recruit, pay for, and cast the vision and mission for the team. Second, you have a coach. They're the ones directing the day-to-day training and directing the play calling during the game. Third, you have players. They're the ones executing the training and the play calling during the game. And fourth, you've got to have a game plan. The game plan is something the manager, the coach, and the players, something the whole team is working together on in order to achieve victory. In Ephesians, we see all four of these elements. God is the manager. Paul is the coach. The church are the players. And the gospel of salvation is the team's game plan. Throughout the rest of this sermon today, we're going to unpack these four elements introduced in the first few verses of Ephesians. So let's start first with God. God himself is clearly the most significant subject in Ephesians, and really the entire Bible for that matter. As we'll see in this series, there's quite a bit that God reveals about his will, his nature, and his ways in this letter. If you look with me at Ephesians 1.1, we're immediately introduced to the subject of God's will. Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
Do you see that right there? By the will of God. Paul did not appoint himself an authority in the church. In fact, as we'll see later, Paul was the least likely person to be appointed an authority in the church. However, it is by the will of God, not the will of man, that Paul is writing to the Ephesians. Again, Ephesians teaches us that God is victory-oriented and God is team-oriented, but more precisely, God's will is victory-oriented and team-oriented. Doctrinally, God's will is often understood through two dimensions. Some theologians refer to the first dimension as God's will of decree. Again, God's will of decree And the second dimension is often called God's will of command. And we see both of these dimensions of God's will at work throughout the letter to the Ephesians. God's will of decree involves all that God does on his own to secure victory. Kind of like a manager working to recruit and lead a team, God is often at work behind the scenes to secure victory in ways that we as the players don't always see. For example, in chapter 1, we learn that God, in verse 4, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And in verse 5, predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of His what? Will. His will. There is nothing that we do as the players to get chosen, and there is nothing that we contribute as the players to be predestined. Before the foundation of the world, God willingly decreed that those redeemed by Jesus would experience victory. Whereas God's will of decree ultimately depends on God, God's will of command is something that God gives us to do. Perhaps we see this best in Ephesians chapter 6, where the church is instructed to put on the whole armor of God. God has gotten his team new uniforms, and now he's telling Coach Paul it's time to get the players suited up. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. A pattern that we're going to see throughout Ephesians is that God is the one who has already secured victory against the spiritual forces of darkness. But God is also the one actively directing us as the church in how to live in light of this victory. We have his will of decree and his will of command. In addition to God's will, Ephesians also teaches us quite a bit about God's nature. And by nature, what I mean is the essential being of God. Who is God? What is God like? Over the summer, we spent several weeks working through A.W. Tozer's book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And in that series, we learned quite a bit about the attributes of God's nature and how they shape the way that we view God and the way that we worship God. 
The first chapter of Ephesians introduces us to something called the Trinitarian formula by some commentators. This is where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all mentioned in close succession. In fact, the Trinitarian formula is reiterated nine different times throughout the letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1-2, we're clearly introduced to God the Father and Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. Then if you look there closely at verse 3, you'll see that it alludes to spiritual blessings. Ephesians then reveals the clear person and work of these spiritual blessings flow from God the Spirit himself, if you look down further at verse 13. Ephesians tells us that God's nature is Trinitarian. The Bible teaches us that there is only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet, as we'll see in Ephesians, God also reveals that he is made up of three distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. God is triune in nature. There are none like him, and he is three in one. Now, delving into the Trinity is not something that we're going to accomplish in this introductory message, but over the next three sermons, we're going to be looking at God's Trinitarian revelations in Ephesians 1. And our goal will be to help us better understand what the Trinity means and why the Trinity matters for the church. So if you're interested in the Trinity, be sure not to miss the next three uh, sermons this, uh, in this series. Now, the last thing I want to mention about the manager is his ways. How does Ephesians characterize the ways of God? Well, if you look at Ephesians 1-2, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then a little further on, we're told, in love, he predestined us. God's will is victory-oriented and team-oriented. God's nature is Trinitarian. And God's ways are gracious, peaceful, and loving. The term grace is used 12 times in Ephesians. The term peace is used eight times in Ephesians. And the term love is used in overwhelming 23 times in Ephesians. We might observe that God isn't entirely gracious, peaceful, or loving towards the forces of darkness in Ephesians 6. But, and if you're thinking that, you're, you're, you're right. A good manager knows the team's opponent, and a good manager wants to see his team led to victory. When Ephesians speaks of God's ways being gracious, peaceful, and loving, it's describing the ways in which God interacts with his team, with his church. In Ephesians 1 and 2, we're told God's grace is glorious, and as well as that God's grace is rich, and that God's grace saves. In Ephesians 2, we're told God is peace, God makes peace, and that God preaches peace. And then all throughout Ephesians, we're told God loves us so that we can love him more and that we can love each other more. 
As we're going to see in this journey through Ephesians, God's ways towards the church are overwhelmingly gracious, peaceful, and loving. Now that we've introduced the will, the nature, and the ways of the manager, let's now look at who God chooses to coach his church in in this letter. Now, Ephesians is what we call an epistle. An epistle is just another fancy way of saying letter. What's interesting about letters, though, in the first century Roman world is that they usually start by introducing the author. Now, this is the complete opposite of how we write our letters or write our emails today. We typically wait until the very end of our message to tell the person that we're writing to who we actually are. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always found this to be kind of strange, really odd. Maybe the people who invented English thought that if you just waited till the end of the letter to introduce who you were, that, you know, the recipient would be more likely to read it. But, you know, as I was thinking, I'm guessing that maybe the inventors of English just really like surprises. Uh, Designing English, it was getting boring for some of those guys. And when it came to letters, someone thought, you know, how about this? We just make letters into their own mystery genre. There's going to be this suspense when you build up to revealing who the real author is at the end, and plot twist, it might not be the person on the letter envelope. I think really the intended effect was supposed to go something like this. Aha! It was me that wrote that letter to you, cable company. I bet you didn't see that coming. Sincerely, yours. In whatever case, I kind of like the Bible's way better. Who wrote Ephesians? The first word tells us the answer in Ephesians 1.1. Paul. Paul wrote Ephesians. And Paul is God's designated coach. So who is Paul? Well, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes a concise introduction describing exactly who he is. And in Galatians 1, 11 through 23, Paul says this, I'm summarizing. He says, he was a violent persecutor who was called by grace to preach to Gentiles. Again, Paul describes himself as being a violent persecutor who was called by grace to preach to Gentiles. God is gracious, peaceful, and loving, so it's certainly unexpected when the church discovers that God calls Paul, a violent persecutor of the church, to be his apostle to the Gentiles. But this is exactly what God, the manager, does. Paul was both a Roman citizen and a Hebrew born to the tribe of Benjamin. His Hebrew name was Saul, and he was likely named after King Saul, the first king of Israel who was also from the tribe of Benjamin. But his Roman name was Paul. In the New Testament, Paul typically uses his Roman name when addressing those who live in the Greco-Roman world, and he uses his Hebrew name when addressing other Jews in Jerusalem. If you've ever met somebody who's immigrated to the United States uh, from another country before, it's not uncommon for them to choose an English name that they use with English speakers. Uh, That's Saul using the name Paul throughout the Roman Empire. We're introduced to Paul the persecutor in the book of Acts. 
Um, the Bible tells us that he was a Jewish Pharisee and a, who had Roman citizenship. The Pharisees now were the most conservative sect of religious Jews in Jerusalem. Paul was such a zealous Pharisee that when the Jews began following the way of Jesus the Messiah, Paul and other Pharisees persecuted early Christians fiercely. Uh, we're told they threw them in prison and that they approved of those who stoned them to death in the streets for what they saw as heresy. Yet God's grace can transform anybody. And Paul was called by God's grace to preach the very message that he used to condemn to people who weren't even Jews, namely to Gentiles, to non-Jews who made up the Roman world. Ephesians 1.1 tells us that Paul received a special position from Jesus after experiencing God's saving grace in the gospel. That position was to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, we get the English word apostle from the Greek word apostolos, which simply means messenger. Paul went from being a silencer of the church to being Jesus' messenger to the church. His incredible transformation is really unexplainable. Paul had every reason to continue persecuting Christians from a worldly perspective. But when he met the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he was transformed by our Lord and Savior forever. In many ways, it's as if Paul had been playing for the wrong team his entire life. But all that changed when he received God's saving grace and God's call to be an apostle. Not only did Paul go from silencer to messenger, Paul also went from persecutor to prisoner. In Ephesians 3.1, Paul writes, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul mentions his imprisonment again in chapters 4 and 6. Paul's imprisonment is significant for a couple of reasons to help us understand this letter. First, it helps us to accurately date the letter. If we cross-reference Ephesians with the book of Acts, we can date the letter to about 62 AD when Paul was held in Rome uh, as a prisoner according to Acts 28. It was during this imprisonment that Paul wrote letters to Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, and to a Christian named Philemon. Paul's imprisonment is also significant because of what he says here in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul does not see himself as a victim, and Paul does not see himself as a prisoner of the Romans. He calls himself, if you notice, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul sees his imprisonment as something God is using to bless every Christian in the Roman world. All in all, Paul is certainly an unexpected and unorthodox apostle for God to send to the Gentiles. Paul even considers himself the least of the apostles. But it's because of Paul's faithfulness to his call that God used him to plant and multiply many churches throughout the nations. 
So far, we've looked now at the manager, God, and the coach, Paul. So let's look next at the players. Who were the original recipients of this letter in 62 AD? Well, in Ephesians 1.1, Paul tells us who the recipients are. He writes, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. We might say that the original recipients are the Ephesian Christians, but this would in fact fall short of capturing the full scope of this letter's audience for a few reasons. First, the earliest manuscripts that we have of Ephesians don't actually include that phrase in Ephesus. Additionally, when we look throughout this letter, there are no details to indicate that it was intended specifically for the Ephesians. Paul spent quite a bit of time uh, with the church in Ephesus, according to Acts 19. Paul would have been very familiar with Ephesus, its culture, and its church leaders. In fact, his letters like Philippians, Romans, and Corinthians all call out specific people by name in those churches. In this letter, only a believer named Tychicus is mentioned, and Tychicus is likely Paul's delivery man for the letter. Now, does this mean that the Bible got it wrong? Does this mean that we shouldn't call this the letter to the Ephesians? Well, absolutely not. The church in Ephesus is likely the intended recipient of this letter, but they probably were not the only intended recipient of this letter. You see, it was common to write circular letters in the first century that would travel from group to group and to city to city. Now, on the screen, we're going to put up a map of the Roman Empire. This is ancient Rome. Uh, you can see that the blue circle, that there is Rome. The red circle is Ephesus, and the yellow circle represents Antioch. Rome, Ephesus, and Antioch were to the Roman Empire as Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York are to the United States today. Rome was the seat of power in the west, Antioch was called the jewel in the east, and Ephesus was in the heart of a region called Asia Minor, right in between them. In fact, Ephesus was probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Its population back then was estimated to have been about 250,000. And for, this, for an ancient city, that was really big. I mean, that's, that's twice the size of Aletha. And not only is Ephesus mentioned in the book of Acts, but Ephesus is also mentioned as one of the seven churches that the Apostle John addresses in his letter of Revelation. Considering that Ephesus was the biggest trade city of the region of Asia Minor, that, as you can see, makes up most of modern-day Turkey, it was likely that Paul intended for this letter to be distributed to all of the churches and Gentile Christians through that region. You know, it'd almost be like if we had Pastor Mike, and Pastor Mike decided to write a letter to the church in Kansas City. That letter would get distributed to the church in Kansas City, but then it would make its way to the church in Overland Park, and the church in Olathe, and the church in Gardner, and so on and so forth. 
So throughout this sermon series, we'll sometimes refer to the Christian recipients of this letter as the Ephesians, especially, especially considering that they would have been one of the primary recipients of the letter. But it's also helpful to note um, in a way that in the way that this letter is written, Paul truly has a non-Jewish Christian in mind for the recipient. You know, unlike the letter to the Hebrews, which is full of Old Testament citations, uh, you may notice that the letter to the Ephesians is absent of many uh, Old Testament citations. There's only a couple of them in here. And you know, this makes a lot of sense because, again, Paul is, ad- uh, is addressing predominantly Gentile Christians. They would not have grown up as familiar with the Hebrew Bible as he was. So who then are the players Paul is called to coach from prison in this letter? Well, verse 1 tells us that the Ephesians are faithful Gentile saints. They are faithful Gentile saints. They are faithful, meaning that they believe Jesus is God's Savior. They are Gentile, meaning that they were not raised under God's old covenant law. And they are saints. Now, if you grew up in a Catholic or Orthodox tradition, this word saint here might be a little bit confusing or new. When the New Testament speaks of saints in English, the literal word in Greek means holy ones. Saints are not special religious men or women that we pray to. And saints are not an office that you achieve that then allows you to disseminate special spiritual blessings after death. We're not talking about the New Orleans Saints football team either. That's not who Paul's addressing. Saints here means ordinary Christians, just like you and me, who have been made holy and who have been sanctified by Jesus' death and resurrection. If you genuinely believe Jesus is your Savior, and if you confess Jesus is your Lord, then the Apostle Paul would address you as a holy one, as a saint. From Paul's perspective, Ray here is a saint. Linda is a saint. Kristen is a saint. Cody, back in the booth, you're a saint for running these slides. We are all saints in Jesus Christ. Most of us here on the West Campus team, from what I know, I don't think we grew up in Jewish context or with a Jewish heritage, which means that in some ways, God inspired Paul to write this letter to a group of people and a culture that's not too far off from our modern culture today. For example, in ancient Ephesus, as you can see on the screen, there was a massive stadium for what? sports and racing. There was a huge theater, which you could read about in Acts 19. There were baths, gymnasiums, and athletic fields. And the people were also very political. They were political, they were religious, and they were cult-like, depending on your perspective. Ephesus was also the site of a huge temple to Caesar and to the goddess Roma in the south. And then it had a large temple to the goddess Artemis in the north. Its metro was made up of 30 square miles of rural farmland and villages. 
Ephesus was truly an ancient metropolitan with many of the first century versions of the modern day amenities that we have in Kansas City today. Now, I wish I could say more about the manager, the coach, and the players in this sermon. Uh, there is so much more to be said, and we've only scratched the surface, but if I did, we'd be here all day and we'd miss kickoff. So I want to be sure that we touch, though, on the game plan before we conclude. So again, we've introduced the team at this point. So what's the plan that this team is trying to accomplish? Well, in Ephesians, God's game plan is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The strategy to defeat the spiritual forces of darkness through God's grace, God's peace, and God's love is to unite the church and to unite its leaders in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is to say, the good news that Jesus is the Lord who is victorious over sin and Jesus is the Savior of sinners by grace through faith. Now, five times in Ephesians, we are told the gospel is the game plan. In Ephesians 1, it tells us that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit through what? The gospel of your salvation. In Ephesians 3, it reveals Gentiles, us, we are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3 also reveals Paul's apostolic ministry was a result of this gospel. Ephesians 6 then calls the church to put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And finally, in Ephesians 6, Paul asks the church to pray for him to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The gospel is the game plan. The manager, the coach, and the team's players have to be united in God's salvation strategy. As Pastor John Piper writes, you never outgrow your need for the gospel. He writes, you never graduate to a course where the gospel should not be at the center of the curriculum. There's no post-gospel graduate school in the Christian life. And I like what he says here. God's word and gospel message are like oxygen for our souls. We won't last long if we try to hold our breath. So, if the gospel really is the game plan, how does that shape the letter of Ephesians as a whole? Well, Ephesians is a letter all about God's new gospel community. The letter is divided into two big sections. First, you've got chapters 1 through 3. And then you've got, in the second part, chapters 4 through 6. The content of these two sections is connected by a therefore in, ver in chapter 4, verse 1. So the structure kind of looks like this. Chapters 1 through 3, therefore, chapters 4 through 6. The first part is God's gospel story. Therefore, the second part is our story in light of the gospel. This means that in the first three chapters of Ephesians, they tend to describe the doctrinal church's belief and identity in Christ. 
while the last three chapters focus on the practical church's behavior and lifestyle in Christ. We learn that in Ephesians 1 through 3, that Jesus is the source of salvation, the means of salvation, and the goal of salvation. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, in Ephesians 4 through 6, we've been called as followers of Jesus into a new unity in Christ, a new walk in Christ, and a new strength in Christ. Ephesians is both a theological description of God's gospel community as well as a practical guide for God's gospel community. Ephesians is so practical, in fact, that Paul incorporates multiple prayers throughout the letter, worshiping God, praying for the church, and then even requesting prayer from the church. This letter is really going to be an awesome part of the Bible for us to study as the West Campus team. I don't think we could pick a better letter to just be studying and digging into before we launch next spring. Now, while this introductory message may have been pretty content-heavy, I mean, there's way more I want to say uh, as a pastor, but I should not say, uh, I do want to leave us with a few closing thoughts just to reflect on. First, the gospel changes everything. Again, the gospel changes everything. When you've received the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, it dramatically transforms your life in every area. Your thoughts, your feelings, your affections, your passions, your devotion. It is impossible not to be changed by the gospel if you've genuinely received it in faith from God. We see this so clearly in the life of Paul. He went from church silencer to church messenger. He went from persecutor of Christ to prisoner of Christ. In his past, he was a violent oppressor of Christians, and yet he too was completely changed by the gospel. Paul's spiritual transformation from an angry, violent, self-righteous cynic into a peaceful, courageous, Christ-exalting apostle really brings me to the second reflection I have from Ephesians, which is, if Jesus can save Paul, then Jesus can save you. Again, if Jesus can save Paul, Jesus can save you. No one is too far from the saving grace of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that turning to Jesus is easy. Paul had to release his deep hate, his hypocrisy, and his built-up pride to Jesus. In fact, Paul had to be blinded, literally, before he could spiritually see Jesus as God's true Messiah. And Paul even had to wander for several years before he was ready for his apostolic mission to the Gentiles. Being sanctified, being made holy, being made into a saint by Jesus is not easy, but it's good and it's worth it. There is no endeavor more rewarding for this life or for the life to come than growing as a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Lastly, the gospel is worth struggling for. The gospel 
is worth struggling for. I've referenced Acts 19 uh, quite a few times in this sermon, and I'd really challenge you to read that chapter on your own this week if you want a fuller understanding of how the church in Ephesus got started by Paul. One thing is for certain when you read Acts 19, planting a church in Ephesus wasn't easy, but the gospel was still worth struggling for. Paul's mission to start a church in Ephesus began with 12 men who had once followed John the Baptist. For three months, Paul tells us that he and these newly baptized disciples attempted to lead diaspora Jews to faith in Jesus by visiting the Ephesian synagogue. But it was not going well. Those in the synagogue were very stubborn, and then they started claiming that the new Christ followers were evil. So Paul moved out of the synagogue, and he began preaching and lecturing in a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, that sounds exciting, in Ephesus. Three months then became two years of ministry. During this long period, we're told all of Asia Minor began to hear about Christians in the way of Christ. Gentiles even began converting to Christianity, and Paul performed incredible miracles. However, intense spiritual warfare broke out. The stubborn Jews in the Ephesian synagogue started getting involved, if you can believe it, in demonology and exorcisms. Many of the so-called Gentile Christians were still practicing magic even after they said they had converted to Christ. And eventually, Gentile loyalists to the goddess Artemis uh, instigated a riot against the faithful Christians in the city. It had to be put down by the Roman courts who embraced complete and total religious pluralism. Paul spent over two years enduring persecution, slander, magic cults, and rioters. But he did so because the gospel is worth struggling for. You see, when you believe that people's eternal destinies are on the line, it changes everything. So much so that Acts 19.20 says that in Ephesus, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. As Journey Bible Church seeks to multiply disciple-making communities here and around the globe, I hope that we remember this lesson from Paul. Sometimes the people that we think are going to be the most receptive to the gospel are the ones who end up rejecting us. And sometimes the people that we think are going to reject the gospel are the ones that are the most receptive. We cannot know who is who. Only God knows who is who. But what we can do is we can struggle and we can work hard because we believe bringing the gospel to others will introduce them to the God of salvation, the God of Ephesians. With that, let's pray. Father God, your ways are more gracious than we deserve, more peaceful than we can imagine, and more loving 
than we can comprehend. God, for these reasons, we just want to come before you in prayer. God, according to the riches of your glory, please strengthen us with the power of your Spirit to overcome temptations in our lives, to release any bitterness or hostility towards you or others, to endure hardship, and Lord, to pursue holy lives for your glory. God, let us never think that we are beyond your saving grace and forgiveness in Christ. Lord, empower us to embrace our call to follow Jesus and to make his gospel known to all the world. Root and ground us in the sacrificial love Jesus demonstrated on the cross for us. God, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.